By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. So today we're going to do a, I guess a little similar format to the episode we did a few weeks ago where I talked about my experience of qualifying for the US Mid-Am. I've since played in it. It was uh, a few of you, more than a few of you saw what happened, but I'll give you the inside scoop of what it felt like, what I went through. Hopefully everyone can learn something. And then we have, you know, we'll see how long that takes. And then we've got some other tweet X's that concepts we might dig into as well. Some short thoughts between from the two of us. So that's our format here, right? We'll close the loop on this US Mid-Am experience. <laughs> yeah, talking about golf at first and then talking about educational things a little later on. So some of the tweets that we've done that have gone viral or caused cause some disruption stir we'll (laughs) see how long i ramble on if no one wants to hear about my mid-am experience then you can just kind of scroll on by here i'm prepped not only do i have one ember mug i've actually bought another ember mug oh my god no free ads come on we got to hit them up for some ads we love that product oh i'd love them to sponsor our pod yeah (laughs) i've actually bought another one as well i bought i got a new one coming in on the way that's because the batteries are running out on them but i'm prepped for your your discussion john okay so he will keep his coffee warm for several hours quick little plug before we get into it as always just A reminder to all our listeners, this podcast is evergreen. You can go through any episode at any time. It's not really time specific. Maybe this episode will be in the other one. But aside from that, you know, we have an evergreen library of content and we try and give away a ton of info for free. So the best way you can support Adam and myself is purchasing Adam's book, The Practice Manual, his many digital products. It's got a million of them on his site, adamyounggolf.com. You can purchase my book, The Four Foundations of Golf or my video course, And I have another freebie for everyone. I I came up with, I feel like I got pretty damn good with my driver and figured out a lot of stuff over the years. Some of I've shared it on the show, but I have a very long PDF and video that I'm kind of sharing for free if you'd like it. 
I will include the link in the show notes. So if you're listening on Apple or Spotify or whatever, the link will be in there. So take a look at that. Adam, we'll, we'll do a link to you. You've got your hacks, right? Yeah, I'll have to type in the URL. But okay. yeah, if we add that into the show notes as well. So there's yeah. golf hacks, another freebie that people can get. All right. Well, we appreciate the support as always. It's Tuesday, September 12th. And I just got finished with the US Mid-Am Sunday night. And I feel like I aged several years and it took several years to to play (laughs) in the tournament. I was trying to expect the unexpected and I genuinely got the unexpected. So it, it was quite the experience. Have you actually published about it? I watched your Instagram tweet of you walking down the fairway talking about how it was kind of up and down, but I'm, I knew you talking about it in this podcast. So I thought, right, I'll save my knowledge of the event till this point. So this is all a surprise for me. This is like a film unraveling. Yeah. I wrote a long tweet X about it. I'll go way more into depth here, but yeah, I think so. I'll be f- fully honest with everyone what happened and, and leading up to it, but I can tell you that the several weeks I had leading up to it, I went from, holy crap, I made it to, holy crap, you know, I have to play in this thing. And to be honest, I had a tremendous amount of anxiety building. For whatever reason, our brains can play tricks on us when we get something we want and then we have to deal with it. And for me, the thing that I was dealing with is that there was obviously an outpouring of support from listeners of the podcast elsewhere. And I put it out there publicly, so this is on me. But the more and more people who were saying like, congratulations, I can't wait to track you. Like people from my golf, I mean, just flooded (laughs) with messages from everywhere. Can't wait to watch you, support you. And with each one, I'm like, oh God, I got even more and more nervous because I've never played in a national championship before. I've never had an event where so many people would probably be, be tracking me on some type of scoreboard or potentially watching me in person. And I was explaining this to my daughter. I'm like, each person who tells me they're going to watch, I'm like, oh, I got a little bit more nervous. So I had a lot of anxiety leading up to the event and I guess a fear that I would play incredibly bad, like embarrass myself bad, like shoot like two rounds in the 90s or something like that. I, I just couldn't help feeling that way. So that that's what I dealt with for a few weeks leading up to it. So that was fun. And I did it to myself, unfortunately. I'm getting anxiety just listening to you talk about it. <laughs> and with that, like I knew the courses, you know, you play stroke play at Sleepy Hollow and Fenway. And I actually played Sleepy Hollow a few days after I qualified. I was scheduled to play in a golfer's journal event and I played the course. I didn't want to be defeatist leading into it, but they're golf courses that have really hard elevated green complexes that I think would expose people's wedge games. And I've spoken truthfully on the show that the worst part of my game is my green side wedges. So I spent like two and a half weeks trying to work on them and it did not go well. I was, I put myself in a mental state where I was just like obsessing about my wedges and I was hitting some really poor shots at the practice area at my course. And just, again, the anxiety building and building. So that was the time leading up to it. But You know, when I got there on Thursday, I actually felt really good once I got on the grounds. Once I started hitting balls in the practice facility, I just kind of calmed down. And I had a guy, I'll call him a kid because he's so much younger than me, Will Noth, who a lot of people know from Twitter. He was a standout college golfer. He's only the second Division III player to ever win the Byron Nelson Award. He's brilliant. He's getting his PhD 
in statistics from Columbia University. So it worked out great that Will could caddy for me. Great golfer still. I think he's a plus four, plus five handicap, doing damage in a lot of the same tournaments I'm playing in. So I had him there with me. And Will had just played in the PGA Tour event, the Byron Nelson Classic in May, because he won that award, he was exempt into it. So he knew what I was feeling. He had to sit on a whole year of waiting to play a PGA Tour event. So having him with me was incredibly helpful as a golf mind, as someone who could play at a high level, and he really knew what I was going through. So yeah, when we got there, I played a practice round at Sleepy Hollow on Thursday. It was 100 degrees out. I only played nine holes. I hit every green, just striped it, felt really good. And I'm like, okay, I felt a little bit better. I'm like, I can do this. And we had another practice round the next day at Fenway, which is a, I would say, a much harder golf course. It's an intimidating golf course. You know, I often classify courses as a tee shot or approach shot course. And I would say it's both. You have to hit really good tee shots and really good approach shots. A lot of out of bounds left horrible rough at both venues. You had to hit the fairway and tough green complexes that you could just make a mess out of any hole. So yeah, it was leading up to it. I'm like, I'm going to play two intimidating golf courses that I could make a fool out of myself. Let's say if I don't hit my driver and irons well, and I have to rely on my wedges, like it could get ugly. That's what I was worried about. As I got there, I felt pretty good. That's kind of how things started. What do you struggle with with your wedges? I know going back a little bit there, but it's getting. I mean, we'll go back to the Ward Jarvis episode. I don't know if I have the yips. I don't think I have the full blown yips, but I've got something where I'm like pulling up a bit and can skull it. I'm losing my body rotation. There's some fear around impact, and I figured some stuff out with Will in the practice rounds because I, I knew I was going to have a few tight lie uphill shots. Like I'm not worried about the rough. Bunkers, uh, I was a little nervous about, but my bunker play was decent. So we kind of settled. We're like, okay, if we have a long running shot, we're just going to take a pitching wedge and run it and let the lie and the the amount of green we have to work with dictate the shot. So I was hitting all these great shots in the practice round. So I felt good. I'm like, I'm not worried about my wedges as much anymore. But yeah, I struggle with tight lies where I'm kind of stuck in between. Am I going to dig or use the bounce? And then I just kind of get some mixed brain signals. So it's something I need to address. I I couldn't cram for it, but I've relied on my irons and my driver for so long to like dictate my scoring and my putter and got away with it with a lot of the courses I play on where I just don't get tested as much. And I knew I would get tested here. So yeah, it's just one of those things I need to put more time into it and potentially, you know, it is the one part of the game where I would consider getting help on, you know, technically. So yeah, those are my wedge struggles to be, to be fully honest. Yeah, I thought you might struggle with bounce. I thought it'd be more consistently reducing bounce, maybe digging a little bit more because you tend to be, at least last year, you were more of a closed face player, right? Which Yeah, I'm still fairly to- closed place at the top. And I tried to weaken my grip a ton. I mean, I was trying everything. I was going with a crazy weak grip and you know, I'd find something that I'd lose it. I think it was just honestly me being a little bit of a head case. Like I know I can hit the shots, but I just focused on them so much because I'm like, oh God, these green complexes, they've got multiple tiers, they're elevated, like I can't miss. So yeah, and it ended up not being as big of a deal during the event, to be honest with you. So the main story of actually playing in it was just insane weather. I caught a really strange, bad end of the draw. I got pulled off the course three times, 
So I'll try and take everyone through it chronologically. So Saturday came. I was nervous, but I was okay. I didn't have a tea time till 1.20 and we knew thunderstorms were coming. So I'm waiting around in the hotel. I get to the course. You know, I go through my warm up. I'm hitting it fine. I'm a little nervous before I tee off, but I'm just dealing with a situation where I'm like, I don't know how long we're going to play. You know, we're going to tee off. I hear thunder. We're still playing. So I had this uncertainty when I teed off. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I had a few friends there. My wife was there. So I felt some good support. And I had some first tee jitters out of bounds up the left side. So we kind of aimed away from it. Hit an okay tee shot. I blocked it on purpose. It hit the cart path and got stuck on a tree root. So I couldn't advance it to the green because we were afraid I was either going to break my wrist or hit the tree root with the golf ball. So I had to come out sideways. I made like a very nervy pitching wedge shot that just missed the green in the deep rough. I wedged it to about 10 feet and missed the putt. So I started with a double bogey and, you know, the mind starts racing and I have the next hole is really hard uphill par three, about a 200 yard shot, just deadly green. You miss it short, it comes all the way back. You miss it left, you're dead. You miss it right, you're dead. So I kind of scraped a five iron just short of the green and I was left with that uphill nippy shot. And I just kind of retook the pitching wedge and I hit it way too hard. And thank God it stayed on the green. I had to make a six footer coming back for bogey. So I'm starting off a little nervy. My head's racing and then something fun happened. So on the third hole, I hooked it into the trees. I'm like, oh God, 470 yard par four stuck in the trees. We see an opening. I'm like, I think I could hook this around. And I hit it to three feet. It was the best shot of my life. Made a birdie. And then just thunder starts like surrounding us and we get pulled off the course. So sit in the clubhouse for two hours on that. You know, got to hang out with my wife and friends. So I think that calmed me down. And I got back out there and I just went on fire. I had the hardest stretch of the course, tough par four. I made three birdies. I just got out there and played awesome. I don't know what happened, but I felt super confident. I was two over when I started. The last hole was a par five and I had 230 in. I'm like, I'm just going to smoke this hybrid. I hit it to 10 feet. I just missed the eagle putt. So I got all the way back to even par and they called us off the course again because of darkness. And I'm sitting in like 30th place for the whole thing. And I just, so I got a little too high on myself. I was so excited. I'm like, oh my God, I just went on a crazy run. I'm feeling great about everything. I can play well in this event. And, you know, if I'm thinking critically back, I got too high on myself. So I went to sleep that night thinking, oh, I'm in this thing. I can make it to match play. Whereas 24 hours beforehand, I'm like, just don't blow it. It was just with the weather delays and, and playing that well. And it was just... I had such great moments of hitting such great shots and that's really what I'll take away from this thing. Unfortunately, I'm thinking to myself, if I didn't get pulled off the course, I wonder what could have been because I had the hardest stretch of holes to contend with and I was just feeling so good. Like I was striping my driver, irons were on, making a ton of putts. I unfortunately had to go off the course because of, of the weather and the darkness. So that kind of was an unfortunate circumstance, but it is what it is. Yeah, this is reminding me of my playing ability test to turn pro. We had thunderstorms and a hail shower in the middle of July or August. So it's pretty weird, but it's, <laughs> it's the same type of thing. You, you, you're playing well and get pulled off the course and put back on. It's like a completely different game. But Yeah. 
I've never had a weather delay in my life. I've, I've actually been very lucky in all the tournaments I've played and I don't think I've ever been called off the course. So I think it worked, if I'm being honest, I think it worked for me in the beginning, you know, playing those three holes, getting pulled off, like kind of calming down and then going back out there. I think it worked for me and then it worked against me because obviously I was on a heater and I got pulled off. So I had to sleep on it very briefly. The USGA told us you got to get back here at like 6.20 in the morning because the weather was not good the next day either. Like it was a mess. And unfortunately, the draw I was in, you know, we had to come back early. The guys who had played that morning on Saturday, they finished their rounds perfectly and they had nothing to worry about. So they they got a, a huge rest. And that's just, you know, there's always a bad, sometimes a really bad draw in a tournament. You can't control that. So I had to come out at 6.30 in the morning the next day with a really hard stretch of holes. So I had to kind of sleep on that with my confidence slash, oh boy, I got to handle that tomorrow. And I just came out flat. I started at even par through 12. I made a kind of sloppy bogey to start off. And then I blocked my drive on the hard, uh, very hard, like 480 yard par four with OB on the left, I kind of bailed out to the right and I got stuck in the rough. This stuff was thick. It was wet from the rain and I just couldn't get it high enough over the trees. And I made a triple bogey. And then I had a 240 yard par three after that, made a bogey there. I got back to that space where my head was kind of racing. I'm like, what's going on here? And yeah, it was it was a very bad six hole stretch. So I, I went from even to eight over in six holes, which was just, and these were very hard holes. Like there, I just couldn't, my, I, I missed the fairway. I didn't hit one fairway. I was stuck in the rough, really tough green complexes. Couldn't advance the ball where I wanted. And yeah, the USGA set up tough as they should have. And I got punished badly. So I went from, <laughs> it's just, it's just a reminder of how quickly this game can come at you. I went from going to sleep that night at nine o'clock, my phone blowing up with all my friends being like, let's go, you got this. And I'm like excited. And then just this gut punch within an hour and a half, I'm like, whoa, what just happened here? And then I had to go to Sleepy Hollow in under two hours and play the next round. So I couldn't really recover from that. And we get to Sleepy Hollow and I look at the weather radar and I'm like, we are going to get drenched with rain. So I have to tee off at 11 o'clock and I look at the radar and I'm like, it's coming. And I know we're about to tee off and they're not going to pull us off if there's not enough thunder. And it's just pouring on the first tee. And I'm like, oh God, it was just, it was really hard to deal with. Like it was really raining hard. I went bogey, par, double, hit a horrible drive on the fourth hole. I just couldn't feel the club. It was pouring rain. And then we got pulled off the course. So we had to walk two miles, come back in sit there for another hour and a half wondering if we're going to go back. And I'm like, what the hell just happened here? <laughs> Literally four hours ago, I'm like, things were looking good. And now I'm 12 over par. I'm like, it happened so fast. And the weather made it so not fun. I'm like, this sucks. I was so excited to be here. I was playing great. And then just like at the flip of a hat, you know, I tried to have the mental resolve I always have, but it it was just hard. I couldn't I just couldn't settle myself. And then we had to go back out there, walked all the way back out to the fourth hole from the clubhouse. The rain had stopped, but it was wet. And I just played like crap. (laughs) I shot a 44 on the front nine. And I'm looking at the back nine. I'm like, this ain't getting much easier. And I go to Will. I'm like, 
you know, I'm trying to calm myself down. I'm like, well, this is hard, man. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a bit embarrassed right now. And he was so positive through everything. And we just kind of took it one hole at a time. And I think I shot two over on the back. But yeah, it just all happened so quickly. And the weather was so hard to deal with. And that's no excuse. I had a player in my group, this awesome player from Panama. He was like 220th in the world amateur rankings. Miguel Ardonez, he's right now he's doing well in match play. He made it and he dealt with it well. I learned a lot watching him play. So I think my inexperience in a big event like this kind of showed up because usually I can prevent myself from getting too high and too low, but that's exactly what happened. I got way too excited and I got way too down on myself and I just couldn't help it. It just came at me so fast. I didn't have time to react. So yeah, we, we kind of grinded out the back nine. The sun came out in you know, the last five or six holes just trying to enjoy myself, have a good time. Birdied the 15th hole, which was nice. Uh, 16th hole is the famous par three there. Almost made a birdie there. I parred the, the 18th hole, which is almost a really hard hole. But yeah, waking up that morning, I didn't think I was going to go 78-82. That's why I ended up shooting. Not dead last. I think I was like 230th or 40th out of 264. But yeah, not what I wanted. It was... It just like in 36 hours, I was just so exhausted mentally with going back and forth, walking in and out, dealing with the rain and just kind of like this gut punch. I'm like, I just was like, what happened here? It just came at me out of nowhere. And that's golf. Like it was just another reminder that as much as I try and give advice to everyone about this stuff, you know, me dealing with this pressure and this being in a national championship and knowing people are watching me, I know they're rooting for me, but I wanted to play well. And that was hard for me. But yeah, just it was great. Saturday was awesome. But dealing with the weather and wishing I could go back and slow things down, like that was tough to deal with. There was definitely a feeling of like excited that I got there and was in it. But at the same time, like this gut punch where I'm like, oh, you you, you were on a run there. Like you felt good. Like I felt like I belonged and I, I was just as good as everyone there. And then it just kind of like got away from me very quickly. So yeah, it was a lot of different emotions and it was just exhausting, which gives me a whole new level of respect for people who like play in these big time events and just deal with it. Yeah, it sucks whenever the rain comes or adverse weather conditions, it kind of just expands out your upper end and small faults seem to turn into big faults yeah. and big faults turn into big scores. And all of a sudden that's something that in good weather conditions would be a decent round turns into a, a bit of a nightmare. But yeah, that's what it turned into. It turned into a little bit like there was a, I would say on Sunday for, I don't know, 15 holes was, yeah, it was a, I'll be honest, it was a bit of a nightmare for me. It was like my worst fears were kind of coming out there and I was like, oh God, and I just couldn't slow things down. But yeah, the weather, just rain beating down on you and like thunder and you're just like, when am I coming off? When are they blowing the horn? That was really hard to deal with. But the positive of that, that, you know, I discussed this with Will is like, you know, you want to get better at this game, and this is an extreme example. You got to push yourself to places you don't want to go and feelings you don't want to feel. So no matter what happens after this, I have gone into a national championship and had like the worst conditions thrown at me. So I think and I hope that everything after this will now feel a bit easier because that reference point was adjusted. I wish I could have teed off on Saturday morning because the guys who teed off Saturday morning, they played a full round. They didn't have to play at all on Sunday pretty much. And then they came out on Monday and got to finish a clean round. 
I wish that was my draw. It wasn't. I don't know how it would have went. Maybe I would have shot the same scores. But as I said, the guy in my group dealt with the same exact thing and he shot two over. So he dealt with it. And I was really impressed watching him because, you know, he kind of had, but again, this is a guy who played in like the, all the big Latin American championships. He was a seasoned big time tournament player. So I was trying to kind of like be easy on myself. I'm like, here's a guy, you know, I'm watching him deal with it. Hopefully I can aspire to that one day, like how he dealt with it. And I just didn't deal with it as well as him. And that I believe is experience. I think our skills were almost identical in terms of how we hit the ball, how far we hit it, iron play, putting. He just had that it factor that I didn't have. And it was kind of fun to watch, to be honest with you. Is there anything that you you can pick out that you would do differently next time or... I don't know because like it just kind of happened. Me putting stuff out there publicly, I don't do it a ton with my game. I try and do it in ways that I I hope can be educational, but I always try and make it about the golfer. In this instance, I was like, well, yeah, I'm going to play this big national championship. You can watch what I do and afterwards I'll report back to you. So I don't think I could have done anything differently because it was something I never experienced before. And I hope I can, weather comes at me again like that. I just, I hate rain. I hate playing in the rain. I've never been good at it. I wish it was windy. If it was blowing 25, I would have been excited. You know, rain is is not something I've dealt with well before. So maybe I can get better at that. I've got a lot of experience in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> as a, as a I think Brit. Critically thinking, I would not want to get, it was so hard not to get excited on that first day because I was so nervous going into it. And then I played so well. Like I was hitting every spot we said to hit it on tough greens, pins that were in tough positions. And we're like, let's put it here. And I put it exactly there. Felt so good over the ball, like making putts. It just felt so good. It was like that drug that a lot of competitive golfers chase. And I don't think I, in retrospect, I could not have calmed myself down and not have gotten that excited because it was just that exciting. But unfortunately, like that worked against me on the next day because when I wasn't playing well, well, then the sinking feeling in my stomach was just as extreme in the opposite direction. And I'm very good at dealing with that in normal tournaments, but this is not a normal tournament for me. It's it's uncharted territory. So I would hope if I do make it back the next time that I could be more leveled with my emotions that I, I usually am. So yeah, I'm not scolding myself for that. It happened and I don't think I could have done anything differently. And that's what I also want other golfers to know. And I always tell people like, oh, you're going to play in a competition for the first time, even if it's your club championship. I'm like, expect stuff like this to happen. You know, me now go playing in my club championship. I would never act like this because I've dealt with that level of pressure before playing in a regional tournament, like not as big of a deal to me because I've done it so many times. So unfortunately, if you do want to get better, you have to take these steps into the uncharted territory and deal with that horrible like. The sinking feeling I felt on Sunday was just, I mean, when I walked back out to the course, I almost didn't want to go back out there to be fully honest with people. Like it was just that daunting to me. I'm like, I am, I'm struggling here. I'm tired. It's just going to dump more rain on us. I'm like, it just didn't feel fun at that moment. And I'm like, I'm going to. Yeah, you can't even, you can't even convert the goal to let's have yeah, fun when it's exactly, yeah, that much it, rain. It, exactly. It was just, I was like, oh, I'm like, this is. I mean, again, other people were dealing with this as well, but I was just like, this is not what I'd hoped my first experience would be. But that's the way it goes. I can't control that stuff. So yeah, I think a lot of the takeaway for other people, I hope, is that whenever you do something that is not normal, that is uncomfortable, 
you have to be open to stuff like this happening. It doesn't always happen every time, but you have to be open to it and then do your best to kind of look back on it as I'm doing now and hopefully have constructive takeaways and positives. Like I'm thinking back to all these shots I hit on Saturday forever, you know, knowing that I was in the heat of the moment and I hit some awesome shots, like pump some drives, hit some amazing wedge and iron shots. I hit some great bunker shots and some iron shots, wedge shots that I was worried about and I pulled them off. So I did that and I'm going to hang my hat on that. And Sunday was also something I'll have to think back to too. Like that was just kind of a disaster. It got away from me and I just kind of blew up a bit. I saved the round. I'm I'm proud that I shot two under on the back nine because I could have easily shot in another 44 or 45 and turned into 90. That would have been rough to deal with, but it was in the cards. So I'm proud of that. And I enjoyed the last five or six holes. The sun came out, kind of did my appreciation thing. But it was just, I mean, overall, it was a wonderful experience. The USGA put on this amazing event. Like we had an amazing reception Thursday night, Sleepy Hollow had all this incredible food. We got treated like royalty, nice gifts. It was a net positive. Don't get me wrong. Everyone listening to this, it was awesome. But I did have to deal with some, yeah, unfortunate stuff I kind of maybe did to myself and, you know, some weather stuff that was out of my control. Well, I'm proud of you for getting there. That's yeah. the main thing. You'll you'll always have that that you got there, and um, I don't know what the right word is, but I certainly wouldn't be able to deal with the putting it all out on public. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was. Thing. I, I do not like that type of pressure. That's not what I would enjoy. Like I I like enjoying my golf. People say, "Oh, why don't you ever go and play in tournaments?" And it's like, "Well, I I like enjoying my golf. I literally like going out with my 10 handicap buddies and <laughs> shooting, you know, playing off the forward tees and shooting a few under par and that's enjoyable to me. And I remember all the conversation here has taken me back to when I was playing amateur tournaments and oh, just the exhaustion yeah. that you feel after the mental exhaustion. Oh my God. The things you put yourself through. People have to think about that too. Like I think about it, but I signed up for that. I, I signed up to feel that exhaustion and that negativity sometimes. It's so that pit in your stomach is horrible. But yeah, I felt like on Sunday when I finished, I felt like a freight train had hit me. I mean, between all the walking back and forth between the clubhouse, the the mental exhaustion, and I drove home that night because I, you know, I missed my family. I just wanted to get home. I was worried about spilling over into Monday, and I'm like, I just want to go home to like my kids and my wife. I'm like, I'm just spent. But yeah, I think just me getting there three, four years ago, me playing in that tournament was unimaginable. So I'm super proud that I did get that medal. I won the qualifier. I got there. I think I'm going to be back. I'd like to make a prediction. Like I think I'm good enough where I'm going to get back there and I want to play well there and I want to challenge myself to do that even though that it didn't go how I wanted. But yeah, I'm going to keep going down this path and I'll deal with whatever happens to me mentally. But I liked it overall. I thought it was super fun and cool. I genuinely appreciate it. I got so many emails and messages from people with support and I know people were pulling for me and I'm I'm so thankful. Like we even had a few people, I had a couple of USGA, there were some people volunteering at the tournament as I was playing who came up to me and they're like, hey, big fan of the sweet spot. So we've got a few listeners nice. who are working at the tournament there. Thank you for the kind words. So yeah, I think I want to be back there. I want to play in it again. But if that's my only time, I will take the positives out of it and use it as a great experience moving forward. But yeah, I guess... You know, if you asked me beforehand, would you take a 78 and 82? 
I probably would have been like, uh, like the risk averse me would be like, yeah, I guess I would take that rather than like shooting these courses. You could blow up. You could shoot a hundred. Like the green complexes, like you can ping pong it back and forth. There ain't nothing saving you. Like there's no bailouts. These green complexes are tough. So there were some big numbers available on it. There were a lot of guys struggling just talking with people there. It's like everyone's in the same boat. That was also fun, just talking with all the other players and the and the weather delays. You know, as good as everyone is at golf who made it there, you know, these are all plus two, three, four, five handicaps. You know, you see Stuart Hagestad's there. He was a couple of holes in front of me. You know, one of the best amateur golfers in the world. There's guys hitting shots and blowing up like you wouldn't believe. It happens to all of us. There was a lot of people stuck in bad spots on the course and you're making triples, quads. It can get nasty quickly. So yeah, I guess if you told me 7882, I'd have been like, eh, I wish I would have played better, but I'll take that as the high side. I, mean, I would have loved to shoot in the low mid 70s, maybe make match play, but it was my first try. So yeah, that's it. Thanks again for all the support. Cool experience. Never will forget it. And we can wrap up the US Mid-Am experience there. Well, congrats on getting there. Yeah. And on, on the blow-ups, you know, happens to the pros as well. Just take a look at the leaderboard on any week and you'll see a big name shooting a 70 high 70s followed by an 80 so just you know it happens to everyone but yeah well done on getting there proud of you bud proud yeah, of you. thank you appreciate that and again super thank you to everyone else like cannot thank everyone enough like people are so kind to support both of us and reach out so yeah thanks we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back Sweet Spot listeners, we are back with an exclusive offer from one of my favorite clothing brands, Viore. I've been wearing Viore for years. I've got their shorts, Sunday joggers, t-shirts, button downs. I've become a little obsessed with this brand, and I'm pretty sure you are not going to find more comfortable material. I guarantee it. So if you are sick and tired of your old workout gear and you want a new perspective on performance apparel, I recommend checking them out. Everything they make is incredibly versatile. You can run, lift weights, swim, do yoga, even play golf. Or like me, I wear some of their stuff out to dinner for weekend errands or mostly just lounging around the house. So if you want to give Viore a shot, we are going to give you a 20% off discount off your first purchase and you're going to get free shipping on anything over $75 with free returns. Go to viori.com, that's spelled V-U-O-R-I.com forward slash sweet spot to get your 20% off coupon. One more time, that's viori.com forward slash sweet spot. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. 
and they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Shall we get on to our X's, our tweets, our mini ideas? You want to start us off? For the listeners, we are on Twitter as well. I've been a little bit more active on there recently. John, you've been active for probably a couple of years now forever active every (laughs) every day yeah (laughs) trying to trying to get me in in on it now it's called x.x.com yeah but twitter x i think if you type both in you'll get there and i'm at adam young golf and what's your handle john at practical golf yeah so give us give us a follow we're giving some good information out there or at least i hope we it's good information one of the things that I posted this week that got quite a lot of traction, I think on Facebook, it reached 700,000 people or something. I'm getting quite a lot of traction on there with nice. some post. And it was just a, honestly, it was just an off the cuff remark, if anything. Have you ever heard of people talking about the ball in quadrants? Okay, so you look down at the ball and you've got, you know, the inner quadrant, the outer quadrant. And for many over-the-top players, players who approach it from outside, they say, well, try and hit the inside quadrant of the ball. Have you ever heard that phrase, John? No. I mean, I've no never heard of any of that. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I've, never, okay. I've never thought of a golf ball in quadrants or heard anyone refer to it. I mean, maybe I have and I forgot it, but this is a new concept to me. All right. Uh, well, it's quite a common one in teaching, at least old school teaching. So yeah, the idea that, okay, if you were to be looking down at the golf ball and straight up is 12 o'clock, imagine the golf ball is a clock face. It's, it's basically hitting four o'clock on the golf ball, the inside quadrant of the golf ball. And it's as a drill, as a concept, it's designed to make people swing more from the inside. Right? So if you're trying to hit that four o'clock slot, it's kind of like if, if there's a nail through the ball and it's angled to the right, you're trying to hit it in that direction. It's going to encourage more of an in-to-out path. And I, I'm going to preface this by saying I actually use this drill. I actually use this concept with people often because it works. It does what it's designed to do. However, as a little interesting tidbit, I made a note that this is one of those feel versus real things, or you're not actually doing what you think you're doing. And what I said is that, well, actually, for those people who are trying to hit the inside quadrant of the golf ball, the only way to do that is with an open face to the target. And in fact, the path direction that your club takes has no bearing on it. So you could hit the inside quadrant, even coming 10 degrees from the outside. And this kind of blew people's minds because, you know, everybody uses this drill to change path, yet path actually has nothing to do with which quadrant you hit. And so, yeah, I mean, initially I put that up and I got a lot of, you're wrong, (laughs) what an idiot. (laughs) Okay. And then I posted a second video up showing this. So I demonstrated, I I had a photoshopped open face and I approached the ball from different paths, from way outside, way inside. And no matter where, which direction the path was in, it hit the same, you know, the first point of contact with the ball was always the same. So the point of contact on the ball is a result of face orientation, not path. A lot of people commented, well, what's the value of this? You know, why does this, why does this help? And the reason why I actually wrote that post is because I had a player 
talked to me about a drill they were doing where they put marker pen on the ball. And you and I have talked about this as well. I talked about it in my book. You put marker pen on the ball so you see where you strike. And he adapted that and he said, well, if I put marker pen on the inside quadrant of the ball, that will show me my path because the only way to hit that is to have an inside path. And I said to him, well, good line of thinking, but actually, and then I explained to him that it's face orientation that does it because he couldn't understand while he was still getting a mark on the face, yet he was hitting this big slice, you know, this mm. out in huge, huge slice. And I, I said, well, that's the reason why is because it's more product of face orientation. So yeah, it was just an interesting tidbit. I mean, people can, if they don't understand that verbally, they can go onto Twitter and have a look at that post. You'll see the post. It's a, a picture of a golf ball with some colored quadrant. It kind of looks like an old style beach ball. I'm trying to like visualize. It's kind of making my brain hurt. <laughs> <laughs> like thinking about it, I'm like, how could I do – I've never thought about the golf ball in like separate distinct parts. Yeah. I could see why people would do that, but – It's the same as saying hit four o'clock on the golf yeah, ball or yeah. even would, hammer this nail in this direction. Well, I think it's more conceptually easy to think about the path on something like mm. that. That's why everyone was – I could see why everyone responded that way because conceptually that makes sense. Like, oh, if I'm hitting the inner part of the golf ball, I got to be coming from the inside with an in-to-out path. Like that's easier for your brain to kind of like conceptualize or at least me right now thinking about it. Yeah. But the reality is it has nothing to do with path. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say nothing to do with path. I'm sure there's uh, some correlation, but there could be outliers. If you did your – if your 100 golfers thing – would you say that if you took your hundred golfers with an inside path, would you, would you say anything Oh, they would there? all, it, it doesn't matter. So the first point of contact with the ball is always a result of the face orientation. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it's got, it, it's got nothing. So if you had, say you have a player who has a two degree open face, they're swinging 10 degrees into out. Yep. They will first contact the same part of the ball as a player with a two degrees open face, swinging 20 degrees out to in. Out to, yeah, like that even makes sense. As widely separate as those paths yeah. are, the same. And it, it really isn't intuitive. And I, you know, the first people who were like, you're wrong, I was diplomatic back to them because I completely understand how counterintuitive this is. But then once I posted the video explaining it and they still continue, you're wrong, then I start trolling them back. So <laughs> Good times. I started trolling the trolls now on social media. Good times on the internet. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's just, it's interesting. As I said, the value of that is if you are putting marker pen on the inside of the ball to see whether you're swinging in to out, it's not actually going to show you what you're showing, what you think it's showing you. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense as a feedback tool for swing path like that doesn't make sense to me so i'm with you yeah, there it's more of a feedback tool for whether you present the face open or closed there are a couple of caveats to that you know the ball compresses on the face if you have an open club face you're going to contact the inside of the ball first mm. however as the ball compresses on the face other parts of the ball are going to contact the club face so no one actually picked up on that one I, at least i didn't see it if anybody did congratulations if you did <laughs> no one mentioned that one the other outliers to that are obviously if you hit say you do a 90 degree into out swing path or out in and you hit the back of the hosel or the right on the toe shank those are ones that break that rule and there are a few people People who mentioned that, so I'll give that to those people. Nice. All right, shall we move on to another X tweet? Have you got one, John? Or yeah, it's far more basic compared to yours. I'll, I'll be honest. So this has kind of become one of my most popular. The thing I love about Twitter over the years is that you do get instant feedback 
on what resonates with golfers and helps them because they'll tell you. And if you hear crickets, then it's not the best idea. And, and to be honest, like that's how I wrote a lot of the four foundations of golf. It was just miniature ideas that I knew were resonating on Twitter. Similar to like how a, I might have made this comparison before. I think it's how like a comedian builds their 60 minute routine. They work in these small clubs. They test out some jokes. They see what's resonating and what's not. And eventually they get their greatest hits and that's their 60 minute special. In any event, this has now become something I send out every weekend because I know all of you listening, most of you, if you're listening to us, you're probably a hardcore golfer. You dream about golf all week while you're working and doing all your weekday stuff if you don't play on weekdays and you're dreaming about your rounds on the weekend. I used to do this when I worked more conventional hours. And you're building up what you're going to shoot and all of your expectations. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do in this game is that we set up this kind of binary situation. Was the day good or was the day bad? And for a normal round of golf, like I, you know, granted what I just went through is a bit different (laughs) and then national championship. But for most rounds, I want people to kind of go into it with these thoughts. So I send out the same exact message every weekend morning I can't tell you how many people have responded being like, this is the best. I love this. So here it is. It's very simple. To everyone teeing it up this morning, have fun. Be grateful you get to play. Take several moments to soak in the experience. Remember, it's just golf. And that simple kind of phrase has really kind of turned into like my rallying call on social media. And I just keep reminding people. I keep reminding myself. And I think it's just like a mantra to stop all of us type A psychopaths who tee it up with these visions of grandeur, hoping to shoot our best rounds and beat the crap out of our friends in whatever game we're playing. And just make sure that you're taking care of these basics, that this is for leisure, this is for fun. If you are playing golf and being grateful you get to do this, a few things are going well for you in life. You have the disposable income to play. You have the time to play. Just the fact that you get to play golf, that means in the grand scheme of things, a lot of things are are going well for you in life, I think. And just making sure that you do take in time to soak in the experience and make sure that as crappy as you might play, you're going to take a few moments to be like, this is great. I get to do this. I'm out here. And just remembering like it is just golf because I know what it's like to make like it's like kind of a life or death thing and you're kind of initiating your your fight or flight response in an evolutionary way and it's not pleasant. I just went through it, but I had to pull myself out of it at the end and kind of soak in the experiences as tough as it was. So yeah, that that's become like one of my rallying calls is have fun, be grateful you get to play and soak in the experience and remember like this is just a game. I know us hardcores like treat it like it's everything in our life, but we have to keep the game in its proper perspective. So yeah, that's been one of my greatest hits on social media. Yeah, I like that one. It's definitely been a huge shift in my perspective over the last 20 years. I'd say, you know, when I I was an amateur, it wasn't fun a lot of the time. You know, you're competing, you're so, you're struggling so hard to get better. You know, there was a lot of pressure on me as a junior because it determined whether I could get into college or not. And, you know, as a 15, 16, 17-year-old, you come into the clubhouse and everybody's like, oh, what did Adam shoot? What did Adam shoot? Well, I mean, not everybody at least, but that's what you think as a <laughs> yeah, as a kid. Feel. 
Yeah, and you know, I, there were lots of people who would ask you, and it would kind of ruin your day if you if you shot a poor round. But now, you know, I I took a, some time off golf in my twenties and came back to it, and with a different life perspective. And now for me, it is just pure enjoyment. I enjoy going out there. Obviously, it's more fun when you play well, when you hit good shots, and when you of shoot, course. shoot good yeah. scores. But of course, it shouldn't really matter too much. I spend more time trying to talk to my playing partners and get information out of them on how their life is and things like that. So it's an incredible experience. And I was, I, I had a similar stretch. People read about it in my book in my twenties where I lived in New York city. So I would wait all week to play and you drive like two hours to get to the course. And then I'd like at the, the first second I was playing poorly, I would just lose my mind. And then, you know, there was kind of a break there. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, this is, re- I'm like, I'm not playing for anything <laughs> and I'm just yeah. beating myself up. So yeah, it's so hard to do. So I just try and I might, people have asked me to like turn that into like a little bag tag they can put on their, just to, because we all need to be reminded of this, all of us. I don't care what level you're playing, even pros, like they need to be reminded of this. Beginners, everyone. Like I think it's just a perspective thing you need to have in this game if you want to enjoy it and play well too. I think you could play your best golf with this type of mantra. So yeah, that's one of my X's. All right. Ball's back in your court, buddy. Path and strike. So this is a common misconception I just want to clear up with people. So often I'll hear people say, I'm shanking it, for example, or I'm hitting right at the toe. And they'll say, I'm doing it because I'm coming too much from the outside or too much from the inside. They use it interchangeably. So a shanker might say, oh, I'm shanking it because I'm coming too much from the outside. And then on the other side of the range, you'll hear a guy say, well, I'm shanking it as well because I'm coming too much from the inside. And basically, when I hear this, I think, well, the problem with that idea is you're not shanking it from coming too much from the outside or inside. Path and strike location are pretty separate variables. Now, I'm not going to say that they don't have anything to do with each other. I'm not going to say that. But if I'm going to fix someone's shank, I'm going to fix it through a shank fix, not through a path fix. I've had so many golfers who are outside in and they're shanking it and they're on the borderline of quitting. And instead of fixing their path, I fix their strike location. And now all of a sudden they're hitting powerful fades and they're like, oh, I'm loving golf again. Now, yes, I know there's the argument against that is, oh, well, what a band-aid. I hate that. But they say, what a band-aid. You should fix their path. Well, yeah, we can do that as well. We can do that as a separate lesson. But if someone's shanking it, you got to get that fixed first. So that's the approach I use. I see them as separate variables. And often in many cases, once you fix someone's strike location, you don't have to change their path. Because if they come in three, four, five degrees out in, there are pros who do that. So it's not really an issue. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum as well, the idea that, oh, if I just fix my path, I'll strike it out the center every time. That's not true at least not with path direction, you can have a perfectly neutral path. And I've seen it where people have perfectly neutral paths and still shank it or tow it. I mean, I can demonstrate. I'll probably do a video for people at some point where I I do an outside-in path, you know, hit a big fade onto the target and hit it right at the center, then do a big draw onto the target, hit it right at the center, and then I'll do a neutral path and shank it and tow it intentionally just to prove the opposite idea. So, I mean, the main lesson with this is if you have a strike issue, try and fix that first directly. Don't go the route of trying to fix the path direction. 
in order to fix this. It's, it's just not very efficient, is what I'm saying. Now, yes, occasionally someone could do that. They could try and fix the path and they accidentally fix the face strike as well, but it's not the most efficient method of fixing strike location. No, I'm with you there. I had a summer where I was, I think it only shanked like five or six, but it was just in my head the whole summer. It was not pleasant. And that was back when I had like that six, eight, 10 degree into out path. And I assumed it was because of the path and I, I didn't change my path. I kind of focused more on the strike. Yeah, I'm with you there. They, they really are two separate things. I'm sure there are some situations where you could kill two birds with one stone, but anything's possible. But I, I'm with you there that you kind of have to separate the two because I got through that without, you know, my path didn't change back that much. It was just, I kind of got through it. I'm like, all right, I'm going to just focus everything I could do to move the strike closer to the toe. And I, eventually I did. I got out of it. Well, here's a little analogy that I use with kids. And for the adults listening, they, they can use this as well as a visual. I always spray on the ground three lines. And I say that these are runways for an airport. And I say that your club head is an aeroplane. And so the path direction is which way is that runway going? Is it going straight towards the target? Is it going more left or is it going more right? So that's path direction. But we'd also have a runway that's closer to us. Then there's a runway that's farther from us. And then there's a middle runway where the ball is resting. And so if I ask players to land the plane on the closer runway, they will strike more on the toe. And if I ask them to land on the farther runway, they'll strike more on the heel. And obviously, if they land on the middle runway, it's golden. It's a, it's a good strike. So, you know, I, I would see the runway direction. That's an, an analogy for a path direction. Whereas the runway location, which runway you land on, is an analogy for strike location. So they're separate. Yeah, so I use that with kids. It helps when it's got visuals attached to it and I've got lines sprayed on the ground, but hopefully people can can visualize that. Or the another analogy I, I could use, the nail drill people know a lot I talk about. So the nail direction is going to dictate the path. Mm. Whereas if the nail is closer to your feet or farther from your feet, you know, imagine it's floating outside of the ball, that will dictate more the strike location. So there is a, a way of killing two birds with one stone. As I said, if I've got a, say I've got a junior who's really out to in and striking on the heel, mm -hmm. I will spray a runway on the ground that points more to the right and is closer to them. And I'll say, try and land the plane on that. And similarly, if it's an adult, I'll say, right, your nail direction is more to the right, but imagine it's closer to you as well. So that's a way of killing two birds with one stone. But, you know, if I had to pick one, if someone's shanking it, I'm going to pick runway location rather than run runway direction because, yeah. It's just, you know, to summarize that point, path direction and strike location, treat them like two separate variables. Yes, you can work on both at the same time, but you know, treat them like they're two separate things, really. Yep, fair enough. All right, my turn. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, I literally have like hundreds of these things to choose from. I think I've like tweeted over like 40,000 times in the last 10 years. It's kind of scary. I'll go a little more generic again. This is a concept that I think, and again, like I know I ha we have a lot of people listening to this show who are COVID golfers, you know, people who just took it up in the last few years. I find a lot of people who come to golf were athletes in other sports. You know, they grew up playing in you know, all the different sports 
And one reminder that I always want to give people when they get to golf, because a lot of people assume, and I did too when I first took up golf, is that things that work in other sports like basketball, football, I'm saying American football and and soccer, everyone can decipher that depending on where on the planet you live, baseball, tennis, you know, I've played all those sports and I found, you know, you can pump yourself up and try harder and, and get that adrenaline going and like that access that part of you to like overpower your opponent and, you know, fight through the fatigue and all the other things that that sports demands of you. And what I think is so interesting and special about golf and why it frustrates all of those people who come to golf from other sports is that that doesn't work really. It's actually the opposite that I've found works is that you need to calm yourself down more and relax and not engage your gripping everything like, you know, hard and you're like pumping yourself up because you're out there for so long. You're not being asked to do anything physical. Like we're not running, we're not sprinting, we're not losing our breath. Golf asks you, I believe, a lot of different questions that other sports ask you. And I think the solution to it is like, well, if I relax myself and calm down and, you know, do a lot of the stuff we've spoken about in other episodes with breathing exercises and mindfulness and and some of that stuff. Not that you can't use that in other sports too, but it's just it's just different. And people, some people never figure that out, I think. Some people just fight against golf forever and they never make that shift. And that's kind of one thing I always want to remind people of is like, it's not the same. There are some similarities, but like that is the main difference to me. Like you can't just like get all revved up and get yourself through it. Like you just can't. You can't be out there for four and a half, five hours doing that. Yeah, there's a theory in psychology about the optimal arousal state, meaning like how amped up you are. And we know this, if we go out for a casual round and there's no money on it, we're probably not going to shoot our best scores for many people because there's not that, you know, the moment things start going bad, people give up. Whereas if there's too much money on it or too much riding on it, it's easy to completely fall out from that as well. So there's this kind of optimal arousal state that we should maintain. It's different for everybody, but I'd say in golf, it's much more in the middle of the bell curve. Like if you're about to run a hundred meter sprint, you probably want to be more amped up. You want the adrenaline going to help you with that. Whereas golf is such a fine motor sport that if you're too amped up, it's going to change the forces and torques that you put into the club, which is going to change club face delivery, which is going to change result. So that's why so many people struggle when they're under pressure. So I I would say, yeah, one of the main things is trying to maintain your arousal level. You know, if you feel like you're too amped up doing things to calm yourself down, whether that's breathing exercises, life philosophy, talking to yourself about certain things, having a good caddy around you. And yeah, on the other end of the spectrum, if if you're going out and there's nothing on the line, just put a few dollars on it just to make sure that you're going to roll out every putt, take care over each shot, things like that. But there's also, you know, the ability to adapt to different arousals, I think, is a, is a key skill. For example, under pressure, I can tell you what my patterns are, whereas most amateurs wouldn't be able to. When I'm under pressure, I will tend to fat it more, tow it more, and hit it left. So I can kind of, when I'm feeling those pressure, yes, I can try to adapt and bring that arousal down. But sometimes that's very hard to do as well. And so you have to say, right, you have to predict what's going to occur and say, well, I'm amped up here. I'm probably going to fat it. I'm probably going to hit it left. And so then I put things into my practice swing to alleviate that. So, you know, I'll make a practice swing feeling a more open face. 
So yeah, it's, I think there's a few key skills there. Understanding, like you said, that things are going to change when you're amped up, being able to adjust how amped up you are, and then being able to adapt if you can't adjust how amped up you are, being able to know your patterns. Yeah, I just think this game is like the fascinating part about golf to me. I think it's just at odds with our like instincts as humans. <laughs> like That's why it's so hard for us to like accept this game. It's like everything we're wired to do a lot of those things you have to like not do them in golf and that's why people always respond to a lot of my tweets or stuff in my book they're like this is life advice i'm like yeah it is like this is a special game like this is stuff we have to conquer on and off the golf course that i think are like important life lessons being able to calm yourself down and dealing with your temper and frustration like it pushes all these buttons in us that are just I, I just always felt it's different. So I, that's just always a reminder I like to give to people. It's just like the solutions are not always the same in golf that there are in other sports. And just, you know, don't fight against that. Don't be stubborn about it. Like if you do want to get better, like you have to accept that part of the game. The other big difference with golf and, and other endeavors is that, you know, other endeavors, usually the more effort you put in, the more time, training, practice you put in, the more benefit you'll get. Yeah. Golf, unfortunately, isn't always like that. I mean, I think on a macro perspective, if you look at month to month, more commonly year to year, you're going to see the fruits of your effort. But from day to day, you can put in 10 hours of practice every single day the week before, and then you can turn up on the day and just feel like everything's gone. It's just that that is the game. Yeah, like <laughs> let's say if you're, like you're training for a 10K or a bike race or something like that. You know what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah, your lungs are going to get stronger. Like, you're not going to show up one day to the track and start like literally falling over. And like, but the same thing can happen. I've tweeted something like this too in regards to like sports and golf is like, you're not going to show up and just start tripping when you're running. But like, you could literally do that in golf, which would be the equivalent of like shanking it or just hitting it out of bounds every time. Like, you could just show up after putting all that work in and it just everything falls flat. And that is so hard to accept, but that is part of like the extreme variability of this game. It's extreme. I suppose I should say that that's more a sports thing. You know, the unpredictability is a sports thing. I think, I feel like in golf it can be heightened, but I'm sure we'll get lots of pushback from that. I'm, I'm fine, you know, there's, uh, I'm sure every sport has this level of unpredictability. But... Every sport has their slumps and stuff like that. I, again, maybe we're biased, but I just never felt that in other sports where I'm like, whoa, I'm like really clueless today. Like I, I played a lot yeah. of basketball. I never felt like I got on the court and I just couldn't make a few jumpers or anything like that. Yeah, it's a crazy yeah. game. Well, it's not like learning the guitar. You know, I, I play the guitar and yeah, if I put a lot of effort in. Yeah, to you can learn your tune, skills. Yes, yeah. It'll come through, but yeah, it's an interesting one. My last one I have here was a tweet on launch angle and driving distance. So it's just isolating one variable. You know, for distance, we have three, right? They are launch angle, ball speed, and spin rate. Those determine distance. So if you know those three variables, you know how far a ball is going. And just isolating launch angle on its own, I said, okay, imagine a ball is going 150 mile an hour. If you launch it at six degrees, it's going to carry 208, roughly. If you launch it at 10 degrees, it's going to carry 232. And if you launch it at 16 degrees, that same ball, will fly 250 yards. That's for about 2,000 RPMs of spin. So basically, there can be, what is that, 42 yards difference in carry distance just by launching it 10 degrees higher. 
So launch angle is a variable that's kind of very important. And, you know, the main impact variable that relates to launch angle is loft, how much loft we're presenting. That's going to be the biggest determinant. So I know lots of people think, well, let's just jack up the loft then. That can work. You know, if someone is launching it very, very low and they get fit into a higher lofted club, they will typically launch it farther. But there's a little bit of a trade-off with that. If you just jack up the loft... The spin increases yeah, and spin the ball and speed. And less ball speed, yeah. There's a trade-off Yeah, the ball speed can reduce a little. So usually, I mean, there's a balance there. If someone's launching at six degrees, they're going to benefit quite a lot from just jacking up the loft. Yeah, the extremes. Yeah, if you're in the extreme, then like, yeah, most people can probably use a little bit more loft on their drivers for various reasons. Before I go the club fitting route as a coach, I always try to get someone to present more loft without increasing spin loft, which basically means hitting up on the ball more. Yep, that's the so, magic solution. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's very rare to see someone hit up on it and launch it too low. It's possible, but it's very rare to see that. I, ha I don't think I've seen that. But yeah, most people who launch the ball very low, they're also hitting down on it as well. So getting that angle of attack more up, we've got full episodes on doing that. But yeah, so hitting up on it helps to present more loft as well. Usually they go hand in hand. They are separate variables, but these are ones that correlate very strongly. If I get a player to hit five degrees more up on it, they're going to present at least three degrees more loft as well. So they'd be launching it higher without increasing the spin or without reducing ball speed. So that's a more efficient way. And then once we've got their angle of attack in place, that's when we might go club fit to optimize further. But the other way of increasing launch angle without increasing spin is to hit a little higher on the face as well. Because if you really, really take a close look at your driver, there's a little bit of curvature to the club face. We call that roll in the vertical sense. We call it bulge when we're talking toe to heel, but roll when we're talking high to low. And so while your driver may say nine degrees stamped on the bottom, it actually depends on where you hit on the face. If you hit lower on the face, it could be launched as low as six degrees aloft. And if you hit higher on the face, it could be 12, 13 degrees, something like that. I don't know the exact numbers, but I know it's it surprised me. And so, yeah, hitting a little higher on the face, as long as it's not too much, you know, we don't want to be hitting the crown and leaving sky marks, but hitting about quarter of an inch, 10 millimeters or so above the sweet spot is where I find my longest shots because the ball will launch a couple of degrees higher usually, and it will actually have lower spin because we benefit from something called vertical gear effect. So slightly higher on the face will Increase launch, lower spin. If you combine that with hitting up on it, you'll be able to get that launch closer to optimal. And optimal launch, I don't know if you, you've seen the ping chart, definitely. I think you've posted it as well. I think I yep. posted it in the tweet. But optimal launch for most people at most speeds is actually close to about 18 or 20 degrees. Comes down a little bit if you're swinging it super fast. But for most people, higher launch, most people, you can't launch it too high given a good strike. Obviously, sky marks take that out of the argument, but a well-struck shot, you almost can't launch it too high for optimal distance. Caveat to all of this, 
hitting up on it a super amount you know i don't want everybody hitting 10 degrees up on it there's more to golf than distance as well we have to think of is our body capable of hitting up that much up on it how does it affect accuracy as well so those are the caveats to that but yeah in terms of optimal carry distance hitting it up on it launching it higher hitting slightly higher on the face are going to help you yeah i mean that is the most efficient way to solve the problem of most distance and accuracy is just you know most golfers hit down on it and their strike's not great and club fitting can help you a little bit with that but you know how can you as you said hitting up on it adds loft without messing with ball speed or spin and then for the people who might be striking it lower on the face they are decreasing loft and increasing spin there anyway so just learning to move the strike a bit higher solves that equation too so yeah hit up on it a little bit at the center or just above solves that magic equation of ball speed spin rate and launch angle which is that's that's the magic three of distance but yeah that's how i got my driver i hit up on it three or four degrees strike it pretty well that's how i added a ton of distance over the years i added some swing speed too but just being as efficient as possible with what i've got and i think that's what most golfers have to do because you're not going to most people aren't going to find 10, 15 miles an hour swing speed. And again, the club fitting is important, but it is, you know, you do have to make trade-offs there. As we said, if you add too much loft, you're reducing ball speed and adding spin, which are not good for distance. So if you really want to optimize distance, then yeah, it's the angle of attack and impact that have a tremendous amount of influence and are very efficient. So yeah, that's just pure physics. No arguments there. Yep. No arguments on that one. Yeah. Not as much as on the quadrants. anything else for me john i'll wrap it up i'll choose one here we always like to talk about proximity just to bring things into focus and and expectation management i always share this stat i got this from the shot scope database it's in my book i always share it on twitter how close do scratch golfers hit it from various distances and people always assume that you're a zero index or better that you can put the ball wherever you want. And I can tell you, I just played with a ton of plus handicaps in that US Mid-Am and I saw some wild shots, people, and some wild shots for me. We cannot put the ball wherever we want. So great frame of reference, 75 to 125 yards, which is a fairly big bucket, 39 feet. Getting the ball to about 40 feet from the hole from those distances is average for a scratch golfer. When you move further away, 125, 175, you start to get to like 50 feet and you get 175 to 225 yards, you're you're almost 90 feet. That's 30 yards from the hole. So the takeaway I always give, and there, there's strategic implications there, there's expectation management implications there, but just understanding that pros, scratch golfers, whoever, there is still a massive circle of where they land the ball versus where they intended to land it. And it's just so important for every level of player to understand that. So you don't, I think the most important takeaway is you're not beating yourself up for hitting it, you know, 25 feet from the hole on the green from like 80 yards, great shot. You don't get too aggressive with your targets on approach play. I always have to convince people to aim a little more conservatively because we do have this big circle we can land it, especially short of it. So yeah, just understanding that no matter how good you get at this game, you can hit the ball anywhere. I'll give one last example from this past weekend. That guy who I watched who made it to match play, when we were coming down the stretch, he was right on the cut. The, the match play cut line was going to be two over or three over. 
And this guy was fighting. He was two over probably with like eight or nine holes to go. He was hitting his driver great, but he hit a few really loose iron shots where he was just way left of his target. He told me afterwards, legs was getting tired because we'd been through a lot physically going back and forth. But yeah, he missed his mark big time, like big time. And this was, this guy's ranked, I think 230th in the world in the amateur rankings, like great golfer. And it happened. You know, he hit some really wayward shots and he dealt with it. You know, he didn't go crazy on himself. He just accepted it and moved on. And that was a high pressure situation. So I'm sure his dispersion was much wider than usual. But it's just an important reminder that no matter how good you get as a ball striker, like we cannot put the ball where we want it. I know people know that, but just understanding these basic numbers is always like this mental unlock where you just kind of like breathe a sigh of relief and you can have appropriate reactions to your shots on the course and pick better targets. So I always like to remind people of these stats. Yeah. I was looking at the strokes gained. Uh, I use Arcos and looking at the strokes gained and it gives you a breakdown of the average proximity for your desired level. It's interesting to see, you know, like you said, from 200 yards, it's what, 90 feet or something? Yeah, it's huge. Like it's just, you know, you're, you're so far away and that's- yards. Yeah, and that's what separates like as you get further away from the hole, like that's where golfers get separated more. You have a 20-foot putting contest between a tour player and a 15 handicap. They're both going to two putt a decent amount. Like the tour player will make a few and the 15 handicap will two putt a ton. The further you move back from the hole, you start getting to 150, 200 yards, you're like, "Oh, okay, here's the difference. The tour player's hitting it on the green a lot." You know, some 20 feet, some 50 feet, and the 15 handicaps chunking them and sculling them, hitting them 50 yards right of the target. Skill comes out as you get further away from the hole, but there's still a limiting factor of, you know, no matter how good you get, you still can't put the ball where you want. All right. We good to close? Yeah, I think we did it. Okay. Again, thank you to everyone for their support on the US Mid-Am. Learned a ton. Probably didn't go the way I wanted to in some ways, but still a positive experience and i hope you learned something from what i went through for whatever you're going to put yourself through that's uncomfortable to you and that might just be a skins game with your buddy or going in your club championship that might feel the same to you as it did to me so if the same things happen to you don't worry about it it's very normal when you put yourself in an uncomfortable situation but yeah thanks for everyone's support don't forget to check out my little driver video and pdf and the links in the profile you can check that out and always appreciate everyone's support and check out the four foundations of golf book adam closing thoughts from you if you want some toilet reading got uh, adamyounggolf.com forward slash hacks h-a-c-k-s that's my free ebook so you can read it on your mobile phone while you're doing your business i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> awesome. So yeah, or or you, if you want some more serious reading, then the practice manual on Amazon or just go to adamyounggolf.com and see all, all the products there. We're going to put those in the notes, right? We're going to put those links yep. in the notes. We'll put them all in there. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for everyone's support. We will uh, see you soon with a new episode.